When someone takes a child and meets physical and emotional needs, that child gets attached to and dependent on that person. Hopefully, these are loving people, but too often, they're predators who sell that child for sexual services. Even when the child knows that what's happening is not okay, they may not seek help because they believe that what's happening to them is simply a life that they're meant to live. Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. I'm so happy that you have joined me for another compelling true crime story where we'll find emotional, spiritual, and physical safety takeaways. This is season five, episode five, and the book that I chose for this week is called Somebody's Daughter by Julian Scher. Our guest is speaker, author, and anti-trafficking advocate, BJ Garrett. We'll check back in with BJ after we investigate this incredible story about one daughter in particular, a young girl named Maria. Maria was originally from Atlantic City, but she was so excited to be relocating to Las Vegas. She knew that Sin City was very aptly named, in part because it was the biggest market in America for underage prostitutes. She was just 17 and had walked the streets in many East Coast cities since she was 14 years old. Now she was in the big leagues, she thought, working the casinos. It had all started when Maria ran away from home. Authorities estimate that roughly one-third of children who run away end up being exploited by sex traffickers within 48 hours of leaving their homes. Their average age? Around 12 to 14 years old, just like Maria. Maria didn't exactly grow up dreaming to be a prostitute. What she'd actually dreamed of becoming was a Methodist pastor. Maria sang in the church choir and was the dutiful daughter of traditional, conservative Hispanic parents. As she entered her teenage years, like so many girls before her and so many girls will after her, the strict rules in her home started to feel unfair. Maria decided that she would call her cousin's 18-year-old boyfriend to ask him to hang out with her. He seemed so cool, and because she knew him, it all seemed safe. It turned out not to be safe at all. This man raped and beat Maria. She couldn't bring herself to tell her family for two whole weeks. And when she finally did, she felt like they blamed her for what happened. She got counseling, but it didn't help. She wanted to feel like she was just loved and accepted. One day, Maria saw a made-for-TV movie where the teenage heroine ran away from home, became a hooker, and made a lot of money. Yes, this was on TV. Best of all, that girl's mom was desperately searching for her. Maria would be 14 in three days but she wouldn't be home to celebrate it. Atlantic City was just down the road, and soon after she got there, Maria started a conversation with a young woman named Princess outside of one of the casinos. Princess offered to introduce Maria to her daddy, a term that prostitutes often use for their traffickers. Maria quickly fell for this man. He was young, handsome, and reminded her of her father. She thought he cared about her. He didn't treat her like a loving father would, though. Maria tried to go back to her old life several times. When she did, she felt like her family just couldn't understand her. Her church certainly didn't. She said that she thought they were supposed to talk about love. Instead, all they were talking about was her. Like a lot of young girls, Maria went back to the life. When her trafficker went to prison, she was sent to work for a man who then sent her to Las Vegas. It wasn't long before she was arrested 
And because she was a minor, he stayed away from her instead of bailing her out of jail like he did with most of his tricks. Big mistake. Maria finally saw how little she really meant to this man. Working with law enforcement, Maria helped land him in jail for a very long time. It wouldn't have been possible if the officer that Maria was working with hadn't been part of a group of officers who decided to treat child prostitutes like the children they were. Grab a copy of this book so you can read the whole story. It actually is very uplifting to hear about not only how police are looking at new ways to help these kids rather than just punishing them for being victims. You'll also learn about groups of women who have gotten out of the life and now devote their time to reaching out to the very young girls they see out on the streets. I do have to tell you one more quick story from the book. His original pimp was a mailman by day. He used what he learned about postal orders to launder the dirty money he took in from these girls. He was also a religious man, belonging to a splinter group that broke away from the Nation of Islam. They believe that only 5% of the people on Earth know the real truth. I guess that makes it okay to exploit the rest of us. We have to realize that there are heresies that people will use to justify their own dark desires. And those can creep into our own faith communities as well. So we always need to be on guard for that. Now let's check in with BJ. She's the executive director of Selah Life Choices ETX, a nonprofit in East Texas that serves women being trafficked or at risk for human trafficking. BJ, thank you again for agreeing to join us here today. Thank you so much. What an honor to be on your show. Our book today, as you and I talked about, really focuses on children who are trafficked. How much of that do you expect to see in your work? A lot, actually. Our target clientele will be adult just because of all of the red tape with minors. And minors really fall under more of a state and CPS type need because they're minors. Because of the need, we will get some older minors, like 16, 17-year-old, but definitely the human trafficking of minors is huge. This might be something on the minds of people that are listening. What would you say, buddy, who is kind of of the mindset that, well, these women are in this because they want to be? Yeah, sometimes it does come off that way and it may appear that way, especially when you see women or teenagers go back to that lifestyle when they've been rescued and sometimes they've been rescued time and time again. I don't think it's because it's what they want to do necessarily, but it's what they know, especially when you look at adults. Typically, an adult who is being sex trafficked and goes back into an industry where they're then usually selling themselves and trafficking themselves. It's because, again, that's what they know. It's almost a safe place for them. Specifically for me, I had been sex trafficked by my own mom before sex trafficking was even a term that we used. So then you fast forward. I'm a whole grown up. I've got my own kids, my own life. And I began to sex traffic myself because that's what I know. I had learned at such a young age that my body was how I got the things that I needed. So for me, instead of selling my children like my mom did, I sold myself. I definitely didn't love it. I hated it. I was repulsed by all things to do with that industry. But it's how I provided for my children. Not to just make it about me because it's not about me. But for years, I didn't even recognize that my own biological father was one of my violators. He was just my dad, you know? And so I would have done anything to please my dad. 
And I had no clue that he was really one of the most vile violators that was in my life. It's such a process. So when someone takes a woman and grooms them, often with drugs or physical and even emotional need, and gets them attached and depend on them, and then begins to use them to fulfill these other services, usually sexual. And it's like that abusive relationship thing where you, you know this isn't okay, but then they come back and they woo you, and you're just attached to that. You're, you're trying to fill this love void. And again, it's what they know. It's, it's just what they know. Trauma bonding is a real thing. We don't like to talk about these hard truths. I know this is difficult for people, especially people of faith. So share with us a hard truth that you've learned about young women that are at risk of being trafficked. Oh, goodness, a hard truth. Well, I think the hardest truth for believers in local communities is that it's happening right under your noses. I'm from East Texas, and we're in this huge hub, and we live in like what's called the Bible Belt, literally, of East Texas. And we are in one of the highest numbers for sex trafficking victims in the state and in the U.S., actually, because of our direct line from Houston to Dallas. And people don't know that it's happening. They just turn this blind eye. So my biggest thing that I would say for those out there is that it's happening. It's just it's happening. It's a real thing. It's a real problem. It is not going away. And these these women need help. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's what I would call an unlovely truth. But you're right. You're right. It's out there and it's showing up in ways that we're not used to seeing. A lot of us think about, you know, these are women from overseas and they're brought here with a promise of a wonderful job, lift them out of poverty, and then they end up being trafficked. And that does happen. It does. Absolutely. But when you say it's happening under our nose, people don't people realize don't the traffickers are employing our young people to then turn around and recruit their own friends. Absolutely. And, you know, again, like for me, mine was family. And 50% of sex trafficking victims are familial. And then 63% of those are the mothers. You want to think of this dirty, great, great, distant cousin or uncle that's a creed, but that's who's doing it. But it's not. It's the mom. Very few are dads. I was in church every Sunday when I was growing up, when I was daily being sex trafficked by my own mom. And I, I remember at one point just thinking, like, how can nobody see what's happening? I, I didn't quite know that it was wrong because it was my life. Like, I just thought this is life. But somehow I knew this was not okay at the same time. And and I just remember thinking, why isn't anybody doing anything? How can they not see how broken I am and what's happening? And, and there's no real answer to that. It's just you, you don't know what you don't know. We rely on the victims themselves to come forward. But if you're very young and like you said, you don't really know what a, I hate to even use the word normal, but typical family structure would look like. Yeah. All of us need to be searching our neighborhood, searching our just social circle and our church circle and say, who just seems like things aren't quite right for them? And so what, what kind of things can we look for? What kind of questions maybe can we ask? This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but for me, I ran away when I was, golly, I can't remember exactly how old I was. I was young and I had run away to escape my home life. And when the police officers found my journals where I had very detailed written some things about what was happening in our home, 
I was the one interrogated about this. And so I quickly recanted because I was terrified. I literally sat there. I'll never forget. I remember saying, you're right. I made it all up. It's a lie. Just let me go back home. Because of all of the threads and the fear that they threw out on me because of what they had read in my journals. I was literally within 30 minutes back in the same home that I had just ran away from. I mean, it was a nightmare. And again, I think that we've learned a lot and the police officers have learned a lot since then. This was decades ago. But I mean, school officials don't know. I recently heard of a story of a young girl. She was eight, I think. She got caught sending naked photos of herself. And there was this whole big to do. No one knew what to do. The counselors didn't know what to do. The police officers didn't know what to do. Nobody knew what to do with this little girl. And, and I'm, I'm hearing this. I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh. Ultimately, she ends up back home in trouble with the grandmother. And I'm not blaming the grandmother necessarily, but I'm like, okay, eight-year-old girls don't notice in naked photos of themselves. Yes. They, they, that's, that's not a thing. No, no eight-year-old little girl says, hey, let me take this naked photo. We have to think outside of the box. And the immediate thing is discipline the little girl. Like, she's bad. She sent the bad photos. But someone had her send the naked photos. Let's go to the source and realize that this eight-year-old little girl is being victimized and used and groomed, and she's not the one that needs to be in trouble. We have to quit getting the, the victims to be the ones that get the punishment. That's huge. That is absolutely huge. And when you brought up that you had run away from home, the book is very specific in talking about how so many trafficking victims have run away from home. And they said there's usually a trigger event in these young girls' homes that push them out onto the streets but there's also families that just push them out on their own. So whether that's a mom who says, oh, my new boyfriend is interested in my daughter. Instead of saying the boyfriend's got to go, she says the daughter's got to go. What is your organization planning to do? Yeah, so our organization really is to take the girls who have been rescued and get them initially from that fight or flight mentality to first off, help them to see that they have value, that their value is more than their physical attraction or their, their body. You know, so much in the sex industry, all that you're worth is what you can do to, you know, please somebody physically. And we're so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And also, a lot of these girls are going to be coming off of drugs, unfortunately. And the, the traffickers and the Johns, they really depend on drug and alcohol to get these women to submit. Because here's the thing is that you, you can't often or easily do what's required of you as you're being trafficked without being numbed in some way. Your thought is, I don't want this, especially even if it's someone who loves you, you know, quote unquote loves you, that, that's doing this to you. You don't want that. It's not natural to use your body in this way. And so your initial reaction is to fight, to fight that off. So you have to be drugged or subdued in some way. So we will help them to detox and to get away from the fight or flight mentality so that they can begin to see who they are, who they are in Christ, and to begin to love themselves. We will have emergency and immediate counseling available. We have an LLC on full-time staff that's in the home. We really want to just minister to them, help them get from fight or flight to where they can just own who they are and begin to see their worth and their value. 
having some compassion when we see these addiction issues could help us help them. Yes. It's so easy when you see the prostitute walking down the street or the completely underdressed woman walk into your church even. Wherever it's thrown in your face, and it's, it's easier to be repulsed than have compassion. It's so easy to judge who they are, what they're doing, without trying to process the why. When you do have these girls come in, what's the very first thing they need? Where do you even start? That's hard for me to answer because we're brand new. We haven't even completely opened yet. We plan to be open by this summer. So right now we're in the very foundation stages of getting a lot of intensive training so that we do this well. So I would say the, the first stage is, again, if they need a detox of any kind and it gets an emergency counseling, they don't even usually recognize that they have been sex trafficked. They don't even recognize that they are victims. And so to really help them to break down that they don't have to escape us, we're the good guys. What would you say is something easy that any of us could do to help support the work you're doing or to help? just recognize what's going on around us to bring attention to it to get those people help? I mean, this is probably the unpopular answer, but money. Money is huge. Everything costs money. Specifically right now, we're trying to raise $1.3 million. That's a lot of money. Yeah. I don't know anybody that has that kind of money. I just don't. So there's a lot that you can't do and not everyone can do everything, but you can give. You don't have to give to me. You don't have to give to my ministry, but find a ministry that you're passionate about. Specifically, I recommend human trafficking that you know that they're credible and that they have high integrity and they're actually doing work to serve the people that you want to help. Find that ministry and give to them because money does not grow on trees. And we have a Lord that owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all of that, but his people have to be faithful in giving. And then also I would say volunteer. Specifically today, my ministry doesn't need volunteers. We're not open yet. We won't need that until this summer. But find some place to plug in. If you have an hour a week or five hours a week or, or five hours a month, find something consistently to where you're going in and, and doing Bible studies. Or if you cut hair, volunteer to cut hair. If you do manicures or pedicures, like these women need to know that they are loved and cherished. So whatever your gifting is, whatever your job is, Find a way to use that skill to minister to those that you're wanting to serve. I love practical stuff. So thank you for sharing that, especially about haircutting, doing pedicures, manicures, makeup. Yeah, facial, any of that. You got to think too, like some of these women, they're going to come and they don't feel pretty at all. They feel used up and disgusting. Even if they don't recognize that is what they feel, that is what they feel like. So to have someone come in with no strings attached to just fix their hair, color their hair, make them beautiful, do a facial, make their nails beautiful. For me, I felt like love had always cost me something, usually myself, my body. And so to have somebody just love me because Jesus said love me, that was so foreign to me that it was hard really initially to, to accept. But after you begin to see that this is the real deal and they really do love you and, and they keep coming back to love you more and more and more, and it didn't cost me anything, especially not my body, there's nothing that does anything better than that to make someone feel loved, pure, not disgusting love. The ladies in the jail where I serve, if they didn't claim Christ, 
They were still very interested and they were still watching us. You know, if I tell you what I've done, will you draw back? Will you act disgusted? Can I trust you? And I would say even on that same note that a lot of women who have been trafficked almost want to offend you so badly that you do go away because if they can push you away, then it hurts less than if they get attached to you in some way and then you go away or you hurt them in some way. It's less painful to self-destruct than to have you hurt me. Mm. Oh, that's just heartbreaking. BJ, along with everything else you're doing, you're also a speaker. So I want to ask you about a woman who heard you speak and had this to say about you. She met me in my pain and pulled me up and out. What does that mean to you? Well, first off, it was very kind. Anytime the Lord uses anything I say to minister to somebody is a blessing, right? But I think for me, what that means is I was real. And I, I don't sugarcoat things. I get to the heart of the matter and I share hard truths. And a lot of times I'm all about feeling good speakers and inspirational speakers. And, and those are great. And I hope that I do that in the end. But I think that you have to be real and get to the heart of what, what's really hurting you. I'm really blessed that I have a lot of ugly in my story. And I say that I'm blessed because I can use that today to reach the heart of the matter And then to just show you, like, there is hope. There is hope in Jesus Christ. And to pull them out of that. And literally, like, if God can use me and my ugliness, I promise you there is nothing too big, too bad, too ugly that you have done or that's been done to you that he can't always use. And so for me, that means getting to the heart of the matter and then let's deal with it. And I think that forgiveness is key in almost every situation, because as long as we're holding on to that unforgiveness, then we're the one that's burdened by that trauma. And a lot of people say, oh, you got to forgive and forget. I don't really say that. I say forgive and remember, because those scars don't just go away. And if it was bad enough to need forgiveness, it's worth holding on to. But not holding on to the fact that it weighs you down and causes you repeated trauma. But remembering what happened will protect you from letting it happen again. When did you recognize that, hey, this can be something God can redeem? So it's kind of a crazy story. It was actually through my grandfather's funeral. I went begrudgingly to my grandfather's funeral. And it was at my grandfather's funeral that I found out by multiple people that I had almost been adopted. And up until this point, I had been sharing my story. I was good with my story. I, you know, I can't say that I thank God for my story, but I was okay with, like, these are the cards I was dealt. Here we go. You know, let's use it for God's glory. But then I found out that I had almost been adopted multiple times. And all of a sudden, I went from being okay with this life to really being mad at God. And I, like, I struggled. I'll just be honest. I was real mad at God. And I was on staff at my church at that time. And I'll never forget, I was up in my office and I was just kind of ugly crying. And I was just, I was just mad. Like, why God, if there was another way, why, why didn't you let me be protected from this, this story that is my life? And I'll never forget my pastor's wife came in, her name's Karen DeVille. And and she came in and I'm just kind of verbally, you know, throwing up all of this hurt. 
And she just stopped me. She said, BJ, my prayer for you is that one day you will be able to thank God for your story because you can minister to more women than I could ever imagine reaching. And there was just something in those words that hit me like, you know what? I can sit here and cry about it and I can be mad at God. But the reality is, is that my story has the power to help people. You know, you talk about being a young mom. I was 14 when I got pregnant for the first time. I mean, I was a very young mom. I have abortion in my story. I have lots of ugly. And God has used all of these pieces at one time or another to help draw someone else's pain and lead them to him. And for that, I can truly thank him for the story that I have. Was it God's plan I suffered? Absolutely not. That's not of God. But we live in a disgusting, sin-fallen world, and sin has consequences. And sometimes your sin affects you personally, and sometimes your sin affects other people. And these awful people that were in my life had horrible sin, and, and I was the consequence. My story was the consequence of that. But I am able today, through Jesus Christ, only through him, to forgive and to use all of that ugly for his glory. And I truly wouldn't change any of it today. And that's exactly why I share these stories. You have inspired me. I know you've inspired people that are listening. And you are a speaker. I know you're also an author. Your story is, you're so inspirational to me, and I know to people that are listening, you are a speaker, you're also an author, you do all kinds of amazing things. So if someone wanted to get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? Yes, so Facebook is probably the easiest way. That's what I'm most active on. I'm in that age group, you know, I'm Facebook world. But I have a website, bjgarrett.com, and my book is found anywhere books are sold. I mean, obviously, I think most people go to Amazon immediately, but any bookstores that sell books, Unwanted No More from Exploited to Embraced by God. And um, I'm working on my second book. It's going to be a while before it's out. But the first book is great. It's on all, you know, formats, paperback, ebook, or audio. Awesome. And I will have links to all of that in the show notes. So thank you again for sharing what is a difficult story, but you've turned it into or you've allowed God to turn it into such a redemptive and hopeful story. Thank you so much. It, it really is a great honor to be able to be used for the kingdom. And, you know, I just, again, if you're, if you're listening to this, I want you to know that there is nothing, I know I've already said this, but there's nothing too big, too bad, too ugly, too gross that has been done to you or that you have done to yourself that God can't redeem and use. Amen. Thank you for reminding us of that. I want us to take a look at the book of John, 8th chapter, verses 1 through 11 in the New Living Translation. I know this is kind of a long passage, but it's worth it, so hang in there. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, 
They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. The young girl from today's story and others like her didn't grow up wanting to prostitute themselves. Her community treated her like she deserved being stoned, like the Pharisees wanted to do to this woman. But their zeal wasn't for the law. It was for trapping and discrediting Jesus. The law actually required that both parties caught in an act of adultery be stoned. And even though this woman was caught in the act, the man with her wasn't brought before Jesus. Maria was just a child. Yet for a very long time, she was treated more harshly than her trafficker or the men who paid for her services. How many of us are throwing stones without considering our own sins first? And the only one who had the moral right to wouldn't do it. And I want us to consider his words to her, go and sin no more. Let's look at that in a different light than we often hear it used. He's just told her that he does not condemn her. So to me, it makes so much more sense that go and sin no more isn't a harsh command as much as it is a loving invitation. The Savior knows that when we follow him, we are joining in a life that is so much better than what we could come up with on our own. Let's make sure that all of the women in our communities who have been forced into a life like Maria's or have just made choices like this woman brought to Jesus know that they are welcome in our lives and in our faith communities. Not one of us has the moral authority to cast any stones. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Send me an email at lori at theunlovelytruth.com or message me on social media. I just love it when people are willing to dive into those hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.